0: Just a warning about some of the articles we're discussing. The racial slurs and other examples of overt racism do not reflect the opinions, thoughts, or views of Juvenile Svengalis or anyone participating in the podcast. He was a veteran. He
1: with the Eagle
0: Regiment. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a
1: whole another story
2: here. Have oh, was that another?
1: Thing? Well, no. It's just that's what. Oh, Claire. I mean, like one of our high school teams is named the Old Abes because. Old Abe, the ego, was their mascot.
0: Hi, I'm Amy Axelson, joined by my mom, Barb Axelson, and this is Juvenile Svengali's. Welcome back to part two of the Myron Briggs detour to Florida. Have some fun with us and join us in our search for what happened to my mom's grandfather. Welcome to Juvenile Svengali's, where we find out what happened to Byron Wadsworth Culver, Princeton graduate, successful businessman, asylum inmate, and Juvenile Svengali. time on Juvenile Svengali's. So they're all dressed up in Santa Fe. So this is what I think happened. So what I think happened? Because they're up in the mountains. They're up in the mountains. Yeah. So this is around the time that her father died, and she gets all this cash. So she's Fifty grand, 50 grand which is one point four million dollars. Okay. In today's money. I'll take it. A chunk of change, yeah. right? So in our last episode, we're trying to figure out the Mabel Briggs, the Mabel Briggs connection.
2: On this episode of Juvenile Svengali's Sunday, December 10th, 1893. From our Port Orange correspondent, we are all waiting for Myron Briggs and his wife. Bill Johnson hopes Myron won't forget the shark hooks.
0: scenery was lovely, reminded us of Dr. Talmeg's rides in the Holy Land, especially where he says, beware of donkeys in general, and mountain roads in particular. So, so this is what I think happened. Yeah. So what I think happened... Because they're up in the mountains. They're up in the mountains. Yeah. So this is around the time that her father died, and she gets all this cash. So 50 she's, grand. 50 grand, which is $1.4 million. Okay. In today's money. I'll take it. A chunk of change, yeah. right? So I think she gets this money, Myron gets, you know, whatever. Yes. He goes down to Florida and she convalesces. She's convalescing for whatever reason from they kind of have a sense of tuberculosis or, you okay. know, which is common at yeah. the time. Yeah. Meanwhile, Myron's in Florida spending her money. Yeah. <laughs> nice. 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 That's that's apparently what he did. And I just, think that might be the rift between the two of them. Yeah, yeah. That and him She's knocking saying, up his cousin.
1: Honey. Yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> honey, just put it in the bank account, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's all in my name. It's all good. Right. Yeah.
0: Uh, not to disparage Myron Biggs Jr., but.
1: Right. Doctor
0: anyway, so getting back to my room.
1: He took off and went down to Florida, Orange City, Florida, and with whatever money he had from his savings for his first wife's money that he took, who knows uh, he'd go down there uh, with oddly enough his buddy John Drummond, who was coincidentally the brother of my grandmother's father on the other side of the family. Not on the Briggs side of the family, but on the Drummond side of the family.
0: That's weird. So this happened on 18, in 1890. So Mrs. Briggs, Myron's wife...
1: Myron Briggs and his first wife, Margaret, uh, parted ways and apparently, according to my grandmother's notes, uh, Margaret Briggs was from England and her father over in England left her $50,000 when he died, which in uh, 1880, let's say, was a... $50,000 was a lot of money. A lot of money. Apparently, Myron squandered it. That's the way grandmother put it in her notes. So the first wife, Margaret, went by the wayside, and he married another woman, Julia Julia, or Juliana, and it turns out that she was Myron's cousin. I'm a little fuzzy on how that happens, but if you go back and you look at the notes, it's a fact. They were cousins. (laughs) And they had some children of their own, including a Myron Jr. My grandmother, my grandmother's mother Ella Briggs was the daughter of Myron Briggs and his first wife.
0: So Myron was quite the character. One thing you cannot say about the people of Eau Claire is that they are boring. I think that Mabel being on Water Street and passing the Vitapathic Institute may have had something to do with the Briggs family drama. Imagine Margaret Briggs reading these Florida columns while Myron is...
2: Sunday, August 6th. 1893. Florida. From our Orange City correspondent. Alonzo Cook is making money out of oranges. He has a grand lot of russets. You never saw the equal of his watermelons. Bill Johnson beats them all for melons. He has melons as big as a washtub. Bill is sort of wearing away this warm weather. He had a talk with Myron Briggs this spring about a change of work. Bill wants to get north and get in the shade. The only shade he enjoys here is sitting on the north side of his home in the evenings. He tired of eating grits, sweet potatoes, cabbage palmetto, garfish, sheen, head, ballet, and razorback. He wants to get up north to Seymour or Brunswick, or Washington, or Water Street, where Myron Briggs lives, and where he can get a good feed of Irish potatoes and his leatherful of Nest's buttermilk, Barlin's fresh milk, Swift's cream, Kelly's Limburger cheese, pork and beans, Drummond's hams, Kansas City beef, Albert Swan's walleye pike, Noah McLean's spring chickens, and other vegetables too numerous to mention. Briggs took pity on poor Bill as he sat there smoking a stinker of his own manufacture. Myron is now looking out for a position and thinks he can get him on the police force. Bill, being a cracker, of course, can neither read nor write, but that is not much of a drawback nowadays. Ted Bangs has quit drinking and using cuss words and paid strict attention to going Spruce Creek every Sunday.
1: So Myron hung out with John Drummond, who was a real frontiersman and came from Canada and was a taxidermist and a real interesting creature of his own fame. So here are Myron Briggs and Old Man Drummond, they called him, John Drummond, hanging out in Florida
2: Old man Drummond kicks like a steer against the new law about carrying a repeating rifle. He wants to know how they are to get rid of the bears without a rifle. He had a terrible battle with eagles, a sort of a sea eagle. They attacked the old man and he had to jump out of his boat into the water to protect himself. A sea eagle is a very quick If he sees a man sailing near where the nests are, this bird will not hesitate attacking him, and has been known to cut and tear a man savagely. The only way to escape their beaks and talons is to dive into the water, which, we understand, Mr. Drummond did. In fact, if it had not been for Bill Johnson by Cracker coming to his rescue, it would have been all day with Drummond single.
1: In the 1890s, this is really Teddy Roosevelt territory, you know, um, very, um, oh, hyper male and bully, you know, hunting and being, uh, you know, going on safaris and things like that.
2: Sunday, December 10th. 1893, from our Port Orange correspondent, we are all waiting for Myron Briggs and his wife. Bill Johnson hopes Myron won't forget the shark hooks. By the way, I never saw an account in The Leader of how Bill Johnson and Old Man Drummond captured a crocodile. Yes, sir, a real crocodile. You know, the only real difference between a crocodile and an alligator is the crocodile can only open one jaw. The upper jaw goes right up like a cellar door. On the other hand, the alligator opens both jaws. Dr. Tromberg says so, and he ought to know. The crocodile was caught late last summer. John Drummond and Cracker Bill were going along the beach near Ponce Park when they came across the reptile. J.D. soon had a couple of bullets in his head, which caused him to drop his cellar door pretty lively. He measured 13 feet. They got Frank Bond to hitch up and haul him to Port Orange, where M.D. has it on exhibition with his black bears, flamagos, pelicans. And rattlesnakes. December 3rd, 1893 From our Orange City and Port Orange correspondent When is Colonel Kelly coming down? Please tell him to bring some good shark hooks with him. The hooks we buy at Daytona and Jacksonville are no good. Everyone is talking about Myron Briggs and we wish him all the happiness in life. It is rumored here that he gets $200,000 with the Pennsylvania lady. Sunday, January 7th, 1894 Florent from our Delane, Orange City, and Port Orange correspondents. Dinner at Freeman and the DeArmond Hotels were grand affairs on Christmas. Mr. and Mrs. Myron Briggs arrived at Port Orange. Mrs. Nellie Palmer is with Miss Babcock at Orange City. W.L. Kepler, wife and daughter, with Mrs. Holman, arrived at 1.30 p.m. today and are pleasantly quartered at the button. Myron Briggs is helping Bill Johnson to make molasses at the sugar camp Old man Drummond says they do not understand the business and told them how he made maple sugar 30 years ago on the 7th concession of McGillivray. Myron then laid the law down to Johnson and Crackerville wanted to fight and the old man made peace between them. And the Canadian plan of sugar making was adopted. The orange crop is just splendid this year. Call Arthur Smith's major and ask him for some of the late crop. The first lot was sour. pick who early, But those they are picking now, they are the finest you ever saw. Myron says your little grove of five trees are coming on fire, and he is going to ship you a box of oranges when Arthur's car grows The box will be labeled major, and they are your own oranges from your own trees, so you will enjoy. If you come down here, we will give you all the molasses, oysters, oranges, sharks, fins, harcum, and clam soup you can eat. Also get your 100 new subscribers. You might as well be down here. It costs you nothing to travel. This picture fills the bill all right. With the exception, Bud will have a Bronco with him instead of Greyhound. This year, however, the picking has been in good hands. William Smith Sr. Superintending, assisted by John Drummond Sr., George Churchill, and Myron Briggs. Myron said, let us put up a grand lot of oranges for Eau Claire, especially for the mayor's box. The sale of oranges at Arthur Smith's will be continued all week. Call and see and sample them.
1: Uh, not to mention being in Florida and having a connection with the Spanish-American War, um, which happened right around uh, 1898. And in fact, in one of the stories that appear in the regular Florida column of the Eau Claire leader telegram, they had a regular Florida column. um, There's a story about um, Myron and John Drummond hanging out with a captain of a ship from Spain, just off the coast of Cuba. Fishing, uh, 1899 story in the Florida column that talks about fishing in Pensacola with a Spanish captain from Cuba in the Spanish-American War. They shot so many doves that it seemed more like a slaughter than a
2: sport. January 26, 1899, Florida. Will Allen and Byron Biggs grand time in the Gulf of Mexico, no end to fishing. A few weeks ago, Myron Briggs and Will Allen had a grand time at Pensacola. Here's how it happened, Will. On Saturday morning, shortly after the Custom House opened at 9, I was sitting quietly in my private office, enjoying a confiscated Havana and the Daily Leader, when the chief entry clerk informed me that he was sure a pirate was trying to clear without proper maritime papers said a man, who looked like a Spaniard, and had an Indian brogue, had applied for papers to Port Orange, said his craft was neither sail nor steam, cargo was 400,000 feet of Wisconsin pine, Matt Kramer, pilot, home, Fort Eau Claire. He was told that without a clean bill of health, he could not proceed. Then it was the Spaniard said, the water's too damn cold to wash. So I have no clean bill, but you tell Bill Allen and John Stillman that if I don't get a clearance, I will stay right here.
1: Mr. and Mrs. Briggs, this would be the second Mrs. Briggs, his cousin, at Port Orange, uh, made... In 1892, according to the Florida column in the uh, in the Eau Claire Leader Telegram, they went down to Orange City, Florida as part of a group from Eau Claire known as the Big Four. The uh, three Elliott boys caught some big trout, four alligators, one of which weighed 500 pounds and was 12 feet long, and Myron dispatched him with a knife. Also, they got... a. And also, they killed eleven wild turkeys and nine ducks.
2: Assuming my official dignity, I sallied forth to do battle, and instead of finding a Spaniard dressed in Indian blankets, I found your fellow townsman Myron Briggs. Well, we are mighty glad to see Myron. And of course, after asking about everyone there, we showed him Pensacola's sights. The revenue cutter was ordered out, and away we went down the bay to the three big forts. General Frank showed us all through, a very unusual courtesy, as no one is allowed inside. The general invited us to join his fishing party the next day, so at 6 a.m. the next morning, we were on board the New York Herald dispatch boat Summers M. Smith, bound for the Snapper Banks. 10 miles out in the Gulf. This boat was the fastest one of all the newspaper boats at Cuba and was the one that carried the first news to the Haitian cable office of the destruction of Cervera's fleet. She has still the same officers. In one party were two colonels, three generals, and part of their staff. But say, Major... Talk about fishing! Captain Kelly, Lewis Schmidt, and the rest of your fishermen would have given their last cent for that sport. The party landed 421 snappers, from 8 to 30 pounds each, three Jewfish, 80 to 230 pounds each, and plenty of smaller ones. The excitement and sea ran high for about four hours. Myron caught the big Jewfish after a hard fight of at least 35 minutes. His skill as a fisherman was the only thing that landed the fellow. Everyone crowded about as we saw he had an unusual catch. The ship's boats were lowered, the fellow grabbed, loaded into the small boat, and the whole thing raised by the Davids. I tell you he was a monster. Then all adjourned to a fish chowder dinner in the Salon. At sundown, we were back home again. In
1: 1894, this must be when Margaret Briggs broke up with Myron Briggs. I can't find anything about the breakup, but in 1886, it does say, that the Republican convention turned a cold shoulder at Myron Briggs. He was supposed to be sheriff. The faithful party did not count his past work. In 1893, it's rumored in the in the Eau Claire paper that Myron gets $200,000 with some Pensacola lady. Um, I don't know what that is, but I don't think he really did get $200,000. If he did... He spent it, he didn't spend it wisely.
2: Yesterday we took Myron on board the revenue cutter all day, boarding vessels. Eight large steamers arrived and three barks. A Spanish captain, direct from Cárdenas, Cuba, and anxious to show his friendly feelings for Americans, gave us a mighty nice lunch as we boarded his vessel. Today we spent 20 miles up the bay with the ducks. Your cold weather has driven thousands of them south. And it did seem as though they had all centered in the Canoosahatchee Bayou, where we met. Well, it was hardly a sport; rather a slaughter. So many were bagged.
1: So Myron spent all his summers in Florida from the 18 early 1890s to um, the 1920s.
2: Tomorrow, Briggs insists on a rattlesnake hunt. So after partaking of an oyster roast arranged by the captain of the life-saving station, an old Milwaukee friend of Myron, we will go up the peninsula for that sport, and it is fun. Many times Myron has wished for Kelly, Schmidt, and Martin Page for this trip. He says he will write these gentlemen to come this way, that they may see themselves that this is the only place for game and fish. While we hate to part with our old friend, We will issue the necessary papers for the clearance of his craft for Port Orange on Thursday, hoping he will return this way in the spring, when the fish are still more plentiful. It is time you were trying Florida again, Major. The natives are still talking of your last visit. Yours, Alan.
1: And I think he went back and forth quite a bit because he, he is mentioned from time to time by grandmother, by my grandmother. And she remembers him and talked about him. In 1923, I think my mother went down to Florida and actually brought him back to Eau Claire for a reunion. So in 1923, my mother would have been 10. So why they sent her down there, I don't know, but apparently they did. So Sally, my mother, brought Myron back to Eau Claire and there was a Grand Army of the Republic reunion and the uh, survivors of the famous company Um, got together every year, and he came back for that. And then when he returned to Florida, he died in 1923. So, Amy, I came across this interesting little bit of history about Myron, just uh, sort of a sideways mention of him from the history of Eau Claire County, Wisconsin, past and present, written by William Francis Bailey, published in 1914, and also I think William Francis Bailey was the judge who presided over the Mabel Briggs-Dr. Pickens trial. So this account is from that book. It's easy to forget how important the Civil War was in the lives of the people in Eau Claire. And So there's James Fred Allen, enlisted for the service of Civil War in uh, 1864, and he enlisted in the famous Company K-36 Regiment of the Wisconsin Volunteer Infantry. Fred Allen was only 17 years old, and he was captured at the Battle of Cold Harbor on June third, eighteen 1864, and he was uh, captured and put in Andersonville Prison, suffering with his comrades as few prisoners have ever suffered in civilized warfare, and, you know, Andersonville Prison was absolutely notorious. Suffering with his comrades, as few prisoners have ever suffered in civilized warfare until April 28, 1865, when General Lee surrendered. So there was a prisoner who escaped from Andersonville and reported to uh, Edward Allen an officer in Sherman's Army, that he had seen his brother. So the 17-year-old kid was the brother of this officer, uh, Sh- Officer Edward Allen, had seen his brother carried out to be buried from Andersonville. So everybody back in Eau Claire believed that um, James Fred Allen had died at Andersonville. And it was with great rejoicing in the Allen home, that a letter from Fred was received one May morning that he was alive and on his way home. Myron Briggs was the bearer of that momentous letter, bringing it from the post office on the east side to the Allen home on Menominee Street and giving it to Mrs. Allen lying sick on her couch. His homecoming was a veritable return from the grave Fred never fully recovered from that 11 months of prison life, and after the war, he kept books for Noah Shaw in his foundry near Ingram and Kennedy Mills for many years until he went south in search of his health in the
0: 1870s. Back to Jody Kiffmeyer and Mabel Briggs. Mabel would have lived somewhere around here. We can look. Where she would have gone down here, passed on her way here to, to, her, to her, her grandmother's, grandmother's house. Or, or something, okay. right? And then she would have maybe talked to her grandmother or her, her aunt or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, but Myron, because he got kicked out of the house. Oh, that's right. Because he. He's staying down with this dude over here. Okay. The Horace Bright House. Okay. And he's residing there. Okay. But while she's going towards there, she passes by the Vitapathic Institute okay. at 314 Water Street, which I'm convinced at this point that there's two bodies of girls like on the bottom of this thing. But 314 okay. Water Street, yeah, that's um, Water Street is kind of a historic. Well, it's near the college, so a lot of college students hang out in that area. Yeah, it's kind of a from... On the next episode of Juvenile Svengali's, we visit Water Street. So we're going, crossing the street on Water Street, 4th and Water, and this is Fleet Feet. We just got out the Nucleus Cafe, which was delicious breakfast, wasn't it, guys? It was delicious. We enjoyed ourselves very much. And there's the goat coffee house, which looks interesting. And then this is the pickle. I don't know what the pickle is. I think,
1: um, I think the pickle is like, um,
0: are you guys feeling hypnotic at all? Do you feel like you're going to get hypnotized at any second? I'm a hypnotic green parrot, an abduction, and a possible double murder. Join us as we uncover what happened to my mom's grandfather in the bizarre world and colorful cast of characters we discover in the most unlikely of places, the Gilded Age of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. This place definitely had a vibe, right? Yeah.
2: Definitely had a vibe. It
0: was like I was feeling kind of hypnotized. For more on the Florida column, please see our bonus episode, where Mark is going to enlighten you with the Eau Claire Leader Florida column in the uh, 1890s. It is quite the column, and you're really going to enjoy a lot of the names and stories and things about people in Eau Claire that came up and their adventures in Florida. I hope you enjoy our bonus episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Juvenile Svengali's. We hope to see you next time. A special thank you to Mark Glenn, TF. Music by Jason
1: Shaw of Audionautics.com, Simon Sounds, Dude Awesome, and Frankie of Freesound.org. Thank you for listening to Juvenile Svengali's.
0: Additional music by Donald Haywood Glance at his orchestra, and the orchestra of Antonio Romo and Fats Waller.
1: Special thanks for their help and encouragement to Associate Professor Greg Koken, Head Special Collections Librarian and University Archivist at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and Jody Kiffmeyer, Archivist at the Chippewa Valley Museum at Eau Claire. And special thanks to Hillside Cemetery in Marshfield and Forest Hill Cemetery in Eau Claire. This is Amy Axelson. And I'm Barb Axelson, and this is Juvenal Svengallis. Juvenal Svengallis is written, edited, and produced by Amy Axelson. And if you want to get lost in the fascinating history of Eau Claire and the Chippewa Valley, go to cvmuseum.com.